Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm David Rennie, The Economist's Beijing bureau chief. And I'm here with my co-host, Alice Su, our senior China correspondent. We've been making Drum Tower for nearly a year. And one of the best parts for us is hearing from you, our listeners. This week, we're going to answer the most frequently asked question we get from you, our listeners. What challenges do we face when reporting on China? This is Drum Tower. From The Economist. David, hello, how are you? I am well. I've had some expert guidance on the question we asked a couple of episodes ago about the very delicious tiny apples that are apparently not apples (laughs) that you can get in the autumn of Beijing. So my local fruit seller has ruled Mm -hmm. and they are binza. Oh, okay. So not... No, shagua is a different thing. These are binza and she's not having anything else. Okay, well, if that's what she says, then we just have to accept. (laughs) The fruit seller sets the rules. She's the boss. (laughs) Any good fruit in Taipei at the moment? Yes. So as I noted a few episodes ago, mango season is over, but we now have a lot of pomelos, yozi. So I am quite happy about that. I went hiking last weekend and I noticed quite a lot of pomelo sellers on the trails. Are you a purist? Do you take the yellow ones or do you go for the red ones, which are a tiny bit sweeter? I have had the red ones, but mostly the ones I'm having right now, they're yellow. They're like the really large ones, the ones that you peel and then kids put them on their heads like helmets. I've never worn it, it's true. (laughs) Gary could wear it. Uh He'd look good, no? Yeah. I think his ears are too big, but I might try. I might get one and try and I'll send you a photo when I do that. That's a deal. The red ones are probably cheesy. They're a bit sweeter. Okay, good recommendation. So, David, I know that you and I both really enjoy reading our feedback emails. We get these messages from listeners all over the world, and some of them have really funny personal anecdotes. Some of them have suggestions for episodes. But there is one question that we get over and over again. I know the one you mean. Yeah. So the most recent version was in an email from Nathan, who used to live in Beijing, but now he's in the U.S. And he said, David, I am surprised by how openly you can and do talk about politics in China while also living there. I would have thought that you would have been, quote, asked out for a cup of tea by the police long ago. How are you able to swing that? Yes, the infamous being called in by the police for a cup of tea type chat. Were you ever called in for tea by the police? I was called in for a lot of teas by MOFA, (laughs) the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and I have been taken to police stations by the police, but usually not in such a polite way, usually not in the sense that they set up a meeting with me and we have tea and they tell me what I've been doing wrong. So Alice, of course, we foreign journalists, we do get summoned to the foreign ministry for dressings down. But as you know, I guess when people talk about being invited for tea, that's often for Chinese people. It's like dissidents being invited to the police station or something. And of course, 
as we've discussed so many times, you know, the safety of Chinese citizens in China is the number one concern for everything that we're doing. And that includes Chinese people that we're trying to interview, right? Yeah, so a lot of times the Chinese authorities want to stop us from doing our reporting and they'll do it not by telling us directly, you can't go to this place and talk to this person, but they'll often interfere with the person that we're talking to. So for example, say, you know, I'm going to a village and I'm going to report on how there's illegal mining going on and these villagers are complaining about it and trying to protest. And this is something that really happened a few years ago. I was planning to go and then right before I set off for the village, I got a call from my sources and they said, don't come, you can't come. They've blocked all the entrances to the village. We're going to be in danger if you come and see us. And, you know, it's like I, I didn't get a direct order not to do the story, but suddenly it's like the people I, I want to talk to, their safety is at stake. So I have to make a decision to protect them. And in that way, the authorities can just cut a story off without ever telling me directly. And WeChat, of course, is such a nightmare, right? Because so many of the Chinese that we're trying to speak to, overwhelmingly the way that they communicate and message is through this kind of all-purpose app WeChat on every Chinese phone. But you know, in terms of security, it's like opening the door of a police station, just shouting your message through the door. Because as soon as you try and set up anything on WeChat, then the police contact the person you're trying to interview. Yeah, it's completely transparent. And if you go back, you know, seven or eight years, there used to be things that you could report on and you could set it up over WeChat. You could go and do stories that were not directly critical of the government or directly about politics, and it would be okay. But over the years, I think the lines on that have really shifted. Yeah, and, and that happens to you and me uh, trying to set up anything considered sensitive. Yeah, and I think in the past, maybe something sensitive might be considered minority issues in Xinjiang or something about corruption among high-level party officials. But there were lots of topics you could discuss relatively openly. But these days, sensitivity applies much more broadly. And includes a lot of stuff that's completely legal, right? I think one of the big shifts over the last few years is that NGOs or campaign groups doing completely legal work on stopping pollution going into a river or really stuff that shouldn't be controversial, mm -hmm. they get much, much, much more jumpy now about talking on the record or even meeting a foreign journalist. Yeah, sometimes I think it's, it's just the act of interacting with a foreigner, or in, in particular, the act of interacting with foreign media, that in itself is sensitive. Even if like you're doing a, quote, positive story, even if it's, it's like, oh, zero COVID has been lifted, people are spending money. Like a lot of people are just paranoid now because the state has made it so clear that foreign media are either serving hostile foreign forces, you need to be careful of what you say to them. This could be bad for China. So I, I just think the lines have shifted quite a lot. And that brings us to another question we get from a lot of listeners about how we manage to travel around China when we are on stories that the authorities might not like. And of course, you were here during the pandemic. It was a lot harder even then because they had this built-in excuse that they could say, oh, you've come from Beijing, we might have to quarantine you, or you could leave right now. And that was a, such an effective threat to you know make you leave because otherwise you're going to be stuck in a village quarantine for two weeks. Yeah, it's really annoying. I mean, I think for me, it got to the point where most of my reporting trips, I would plan them so that they could be done within one day or maybe even half a day. And I would not book a flight in advance. I would wait until the very last minute, like book the flight as you're heading to the airport, try to go really early in the morning, then go out, do all the reporting and just try to finish and go home. Because when you check into a hotel, that sounds the alarm and people might find you. But as you said, during COVID, even that got really hard because when you arrive in a new place, immediately you're raising the alarm as soon as you land. That was difficult. And look, we tend not to talk about it too much on Drum Tower because I don't think journalists 
basically should talk too much about ourselves. You know, too much journalism is obsessed with journalism. But plenty of the reporting trips that have generated episodes of Drum Tower over the last year have involved being followed around various provincial towns by squads of plainclothes police, followed by cars, sometimes visited my hotel for questioning. Some bits of China, as you remember, Alice, it's incredibly predictable. Any trip to Xinjiang, you are going to get followed. You are going to get questioned as you get off the plane, as you get off the train, or anywhere near a border is often super sensitive. But sometimes it's a bit more random, right? Yeah, I do think it can just be sort of like a lottery. It's just what kind of people you come across. And sometimes you're reporting in one place and you'll meet five people who are actually surprisingly very open and they want to tell you their story. And they're like, you're a foreign reporter. Like, can you help me write about this corrupt thing that happened in my village? But then you'll meet the sixth person and they'll be like, you're a foreign reporter and they'll call the police right away. So it does just depend quite a lot on who you approach and how they see foreign media. So I had a classic example of just how random this is the other day when I was out in Landro reporting for our episode about Bolton Road and how it's seen in China. And if you remember, Alice, I went to that railway yard, Dongguan, right next to this outlying suburb of the city of Landro in the middle of the desert, surrounded by mountains. And you know that feel where a suburb has that really state-owned work unit feel? All the housing is identical. There's basically nothing commercial and you sort of think, I bet this is a downway. This is like one downway. So that was the feel in this place right next to the railway yard. I was trying to get locals to talk to me. I will say people were chillier than you'd expect. And then finally, I met this really nice retired lady called Ms. Luo. And I said, you yeah, know, is this like a one downway town? She goes, yeah, 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 it's one downway. And I was like, all right, so what's the industry here? And she then told me. So it's actually Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So Alice, as you can hear there, when I asked her what the industry was, she replied. She's like, we make nuclear weapons. (laughs) I can hear your your very awkward laugh. You're like, okay, ha ha. And then you're like, what do you think about the Belt and Road? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it turns out that this Belt and Road railway depot that has been in state media for sending trains to Europe and Central Asia is right next to something called Unit 504. And that, when you Google it, is one of China's two sites for making highly enriched uranium for nuclear bombs. And it was built in the 60s in this remote mountain valley. Mm. And so I have to admit that when I heard that, I decided it was probably not the ideal place to be blundering around with my press card around my neck, (laughs) asking people questions about the Belton Road. That actually reminds me quite a bit of the Third Front, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago when you went to Panjihua and looked at all these secret industrial projects that were moved inland. You're exactly right. It was exactly that sort of project. Although weirdly, Ms. Law in this nuclear site didn't call the police, partly because she was clearly a nice lady. But in Panjihua, I did get the police called on me and followed around and visited my hotel. So you can see that it's surprisingly random. We'll be back in a moment to answer more of your questions about navigating censorship. We'll also find out the surprising use that our journalism has for language learning. But first, hopefully you will have noticed that we are launching a new podcast subscription later this month. If you want to keep enjoying Drum Tower, and we really hope you do, then you will need to sign up for Economist Podcast Plus. If you do it right now, you can get a special half-price offer. It's $24.50 for the whole year, or just about $2 pounds or euros a month you will get access to all our specialist shows as well as two new podcasts we have coming up. 
including The Weekend Intelligence, which will bring you the best of The Economist's storytelling. Economist Podcast Plus will be available on whatever app you're using right now, whether that's Apple, Spotify, The Economist app, or any other. To sign up for that special offer right now, just click on the link in the show notes. And if you're too busy to do that right now, you can also find the link later by Googling Economist Podcasts. If you're already a subscriber to The Economist, thank you for your support. You will have full access to all of our podcasts. And just to emphasize, it's you, our subscribers, who make all of our journalism possible. So with this terrible, tragic conflict breaking out in the Middle East, we have correspondents on the ground in Israel across the region, bringing their expertise and their reporting to bear, helping you understand this war between Israel and Hamas. And you can find that on our website, economist.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So, David, we had an email from Dermot, who is in Leeds, England, and he asked us, what does David mean when he says China is not totalitarian in the way that North Korea is? Look, as you know, Alice, China is not remotely free. It's an authoritarian state. But it's not totalitarian in that North Korea way or the way that Maoist China was, where the party and the state had absolute total control of who you married, where you lived, what job you do. And actually, I've been on a press trip to North Korea years ago, and it's a very different ballgame. We had to wear special armbands that said foreign journalist in Korean so that no one would talk to us. I went to a department store to see the tiny amount of stuff they had on the shelves. And I was just writing down what was on the shelves, suddenly surrounded by shouting North Korean officials, tearing the page out of my notebook. You can't talk to North Koreans on the streets. You can't go to North Korean homes. China, it was like that at the worst of the Mao years, but it isn't in any way like that now. Yeah, I guess I would add it does vary from place to place, right? Like we've mentioned Xinjiang, maybe if you go to Tibet these days, if you can even get a permission to go there because foreign journalists can't go without special permission, there will be that kind of intense scrutiny. But if you're in big cities, Beijing, Shanghai, a lot of times it feels quite normal. And I think that's also why sometimes people who are living in China or who have lived in China see foreign media coverage that talks about journalists being harassed and so on. And they're like, oh, what do you mean? You know, like, I live here and it's fine. And like, I'm not getting harassed. There's no police looking over my shoulder. But it really just depends on what you're doing, where you are, and, you know, who you're trying to meet. You come across different levels of the Chinese security state, depending on that. And I guess the other really important difference between North Korea and China, which points to why the Chinese let us stay at all, is that North Korea and China, they both hate lots about foreign media coverage. They would like propaganda and adulation. But unlike North Korea, which is such a hermit state, China has grown prosperous and strong by opening up to foreign investment, foreign technology. And it still needs that. And so right now, in every meeting with visiting Western politicians, visiting business leaders, but also media bosses, you hear Chinese officials emphasizing that China is open for business. China is very keen on foreign investment. 
And to be honest, I think that's why we're allowed to stay. I think that throwing all the Western media out would spook investors. And so even if we annoy them, that's fundamentally why the door is kept a bit open for us. So David, we also had an email from a listener called Jonathan, who lives in New Jersey by way of London. And he asked us whether the Chinese government can limit what we report. And I think we've heard this a few times from other people too, like, oh, you still managed to be there. Like, are you showing your copy to the authorities before you publish it? Like, do they listen to your podcast first? Do we have any kind of censorship like that? And the short answer is no, of course. As we've discussed, government officials will call us in for cups of tea if they don't like something, but always after it's been published. And at the risk of sounding a bit pompous, if the economist couldn't report truthfully what we see and hear, then we would leave. Yeah, I think it would just be an unacceptable compromise, right, for us in terms of journalistic values. Another listener, Constantine, who is in Vancouver, asked if the government censors read our work. I can answer this one. I mean, The Economist is not widely available to read in China. You can get a copy of The Economist, but when it comes in across the borders, it always gets checked. So oftentimes you'll get an issue of The Economist, but all the China pages will be ripped out. Or sometimes there will be black marker pens that are crossing out certain articles or certain lines. So you can get it, but they are carefully monitoring everything in it. And if there are issues they don't like, they will make sure that that part doesn't come in. That's right. And sometimes if there's a cover image of Xi Jinping that they don't like, then no copies enter the country. That's the most severe thing that happens. And The Economist website and all the newspaper weekly editions are blocked in China. And that's been true since 2016, when there was a cover story about Xi Jinping that the authorities really didn't like. And like a lot of Western media now, you need a VPN in order to access anything online from The Economist. The security machine hasn't cracked down on podcasts in the same way that it does on either internet or in fact TV feeds. You know, you can be in a hotel watching the BBC or CNN, anything they don't like comes across China, then the screen just goes black. But podcasts seem to be a new medium and even Chinese podcasts have been somewhat under the radar for a bit, but that could change. Yeah, I think it's just because they're emerging and they're new and it also takes a lot of time to listen to a podcast. But I imagine with the technology that the Chinese state has, they could just feed podcasts through some kind of auto reader and then figure out if it's acceptable or not. But we should mention that it is hard to listen to Drum Tower in China because all of our economist podcasts are behind the Great Firewall. And if you are in China and you want to listen to Drum Tower, you have to use a VPN so that your phone or your laptop thinks that you're abroad. And having a VPN is not very risky for Chinese people. I mean, lots of Chinese people who studied abroad or who work for foreign businesses, they have VPNs, as you know, Alice. But it's not risk-free, right? And I'm sure you've got Chinese friends, I certainly do, who will say, you know, every year a few people get punished or detained for using a VPN to climb over the firewall. And so it's something they do think about. Yeah, that's right. There's definitely that risk. At the same time, there are a lot of people who are taking it to the extent that people even joke if you want to get over the wall, you need to fan tiang, right? Go over the wall and you have different kinds of ladders, different kind of tizi to get over that wall. And people joke about the quality of the ladder, kind of like, oh, this VPN is working really well these days. This other one is not working well. But beyond jokes, of course, in a place like Xinjiang, there's a huge amount of evidence that the police will stop Uyghurs, check their phones. And if they have a VPN or they have a foreign app like WhatsApp on their phone, then that has in the past got people taken off and detained in camps. Exactly. So there's no doubt that there is a risk in accessing restricted content like this podcast. And that's also why I find it particularly meaningful when we get emails from listeners in China. And we have gotten quite a few of those and they're taking a huge risk 
to listen and then to even, you know, send us messages and tell us that they're listening and also tell us that they really relate to the things that we say. It's kind of one of the really sad things that we get these really moving emails from Chinese listeners and we love getting them and thank you, but we don't read those out because we need to keep people safe. Although I have also noticed that like on WeChat, I've searched Drum Tower and I've noticed that some people recommend Drum Tower just as a good way to practice English. And they're like, oh yeah, there's like an American accent and a British accent. You can listen to both. <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy to provide that service. Excellent. I'll take that. The Economist is also used to teach English in universities, the newspaper. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So something else that we're always thinking about is the safety of the people that we interview, especially inside China. I mean, that's why we very rarely use their full names. Yeah. If you remember the episode about the Su family, your namesakes in that episode about women in villages fighting for their land rights. And there was a reason, right? You remember we didn't give Ms. Su's full name. She gave us permission, of course, to use her voice, but she didn't want to be identified. And we thought carefully about how not to lead the authorities to her door. Yeah. So it's just this really tricky thing because one of the best things about reporting is you get to be on the ground and you get to hear actual Chinese voices and you want so much for the rest of the world to hear them. But then at the same time, sometimes it can be really difficult because you have to decide, okay, how can I do this while protecting them? And then oftentimes you'll interview people and then they'll come back to you and say, actually, please don't use my voice. Don't use my quotes. And then we just have to accept that. And we know that foreign media attention is a really double-edged weapon, that it can sometimes help. And that's one reason I think that so many Chinese do talk to us. But sometimes it can be just sort of admitting that you've given up getting your appeal through an official channel because the risks are they could be so angry about foreign media coverage. Hmm. And something that's really struck me now that I'm outside of China is that sometimes you're reporting on China-related stories. Like when we did the two-part series on Xinjiang, it was called The Cage. And you realize that even people outside of China are still really worried about harm that could come to their families inside the country. So, I mean, there were quite a number of Uyghurs I interviewed in Istanbul who wanted to tell their story, but then later on they came under pressure and they were really scared for their relatives at home and they withdrew. And so that's really striking to me because it just says that the Chinese state has power to censor its citizens, even if they've left the country. So one thing I do want to say is I don't want to pretend to be in any way a kind of hero who's taking physical risks. Once or twice in Xinjiang, there's been a bit of kind of shoving because some thug wanted the photo that was on my camera of a prison that was next to a factory that had been sanctioned or something. But it was not scary violence. And I have to say that part of that is, I think, because I am a grey-haired white British guy. And that gives you protection in a Chinese village in a way that I'm afraid my sense is that a journalist like you, with Chinese heritage, particularly a woman journalist, it's a very different story. All the worst stories of harassment and even physical nastiness seem to have that sexist, chauvinist edge to them. Yeah. I mean, there was one time when I was in Inner Mongolia detained, and I remember that one of the policemen was shouting at me, and he said, you so-called American journalist, like, 所谓的美国记者. 所谓的美国, wow. So there's this kind of additional vibe where they won't accept that you aren't Chinese. Like if you are ethnically Chinese, then you should be loyal to the nation. You shouldn't be working for foreign media and writing critical things. And so there definitely is that additional layer. But I, I would also add that the people taking the very most risk are Chinese citizens. They come under much more pressure and, and their families come under much more pressure. And so I have infinite respect for them. Yeah, 100%. They are the unsung heroes. And we can't name them while they're working for us in China because they're not allowed to be considered reporters. They are great journalists and brave people and we couldn't do it without them. 
So David, let's shift away a little bit from all the trials and challenges of reporting in China and talk about podcasting, which is something totally new for us. And I know that neither of us had hosted a podcast of our own before we started this last year. But I have to say, I, I've really enjoyed it. I find that it's so immersive. And it's not just that we feel like we can connect with our listeners because they're hearing our voices, but so many times I'm doing interviews and I'm talking to someone and I'm thinking like, this person is amazing. I just wish my readers could meet them and could you know, hear the tone in their voice and hear the emotion. And that's what podcasting has allowed us to do. And so I, I am really happy to have had this opportunity. I think it's absolutely right. With the podcast, it's like you can bring the village to life. You can hear the frustration in the voice of the farmer or the women fighting for their rights. These are mothers with little kids running around them, distracting them. They've got to cook lunch, but they're making time to tell a foreign journalist about just trying to fight for what they feel is fair. And that I think that is just really powerful. It's a tremendous privilege being based as a journalist in China at all. There's not many of us left. But to be able to bring it to life in audio as well as in print, it's been fantastic. And thank you to our listeners who make that all possible by tuning in and giving us your time. David, we're like talking in this very formal way. We're using past tense. This is not a goodbye, to be clear. We are just reflecting on how great it's been. And we still have many plans to go to lots of different places, more villages, more trains, more countries around the world where China has an influence. And we are really excited to bring that to our listeners. And Alice, we've been working on something really exciting for listeners, right? That's right. We're going to be releasing our four-part series about Taiwan. And David, you were recently here with me recording part of that. Taiwan is a place that we have reported on quite a lot, and it's a place that is obviously under Chinese threat. And since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the threat to Taiwan has really come into global focus. But what we try to do in this series is to really get into Taiwan and to hear from all kinds of different Taiwanese people about how they think about their identity, their history, and also their future. So we're going to be talking about all the big questions that listeners might have. You know, like, what is Taiwan? You know, is Taiwan Chinese or not? How do you reconcile the Chinese part of Taiwan's history with its present? What is the role of Taiwan's semiconductor industry in protecting the island? What's going to happen if China actually wants to invade? How good is Taiwan's military? Are they prepared to fight? And what would that look like? And also, what are the ways that China is trying to influence Taiwan, maybe towards Xi Jinping's preferred choice, which is a peaceful unification? How is China trying to coerce and win Taiwan over without having to fight? I'm really glad we're devoting four episodes to this, because as you know, Alice, nothing comes up more often in conversations with people about the future of China than is there going to be a war with Taiwan. So it's really important. And I think it's a very good way to mark what is going to be our first anniversary of Drum Tower. Well, I can't believe we're already heading into the second year. I mean, that feels like it went really fast. Yeah, it has flown by. And of course, you and I both just been in Washington, D.C. And while we were there, I went to Capitol Hill to talk to lots of members of Congress, senators about U.S.-China relations. And we'll be diving into that next week. I am looking forward to that and to the next year of Drum Tower. I'm hoping to make many more trips abroad to see where China has influence all around the world. And I'll be traveling inside China, taking listeners with me on my journeys. And hopefully we'll also be doing more live drum towers around the world for our subscribers, like the one that we just did at Georgetown. It's so good to meet some listeners in person, and we want to do a lot more of that. It has been such an extraordinary first year, and we cannot wait to bring listeners more of that. Thank you so much for listening to Drum Tower. And if you want to keep listening, and we really hope you do, 
And if you want to catch our special Taiwan series, then you will need to become a subscriber to Economist Podcast Plus. Remember, we have a special half price offer for our listeners right now. It is twenty four fifty for the whole year, or just two dollars or pounds or euros a month. To sign up, click the link in our show notes, or just Google Economist Podcasts. And thank you, as ever, to everyone who's emailed us. So a big hello to Rudranch in New Delhi, to Bruno who listens while hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, and Kelly at her sewing machine in San Francisco. And thanks to everyone who's emailed to say they've already signed up for a podcast subscription, so they can carry on keeping us company here on Drum Tower. And if any of you want to email us, our address is drum at economist dot com. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burl and Jiehao Chen produced this episode. Sound design is by Tingli Lim, and our music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.